We are going to finish up Psalm 77 this evening. I encourage you to follow along either on an app on your electronic device. You can grab a Bible there on the back shelf. Have God's Word on your own lap there to follow along. No treasure on earth like God's Word. So I want to read that. It's kind of interesting. The most valuable treasure in all the world readily available to all of us, right? That's a pretty neat thing. We are going to finish Psalm 77 this evening, and if you haven't been here for our series that we're in, what we've been doing is been taking a look at the Psalms written by King David and Asaph, which were dedicated to a specific man. His name was Jejuthim. Uh, he is the only man in all the Psalter who had Psalms addressed to him, uh, written by someone else. And so we've been enjoying going through these, and tonight we finish it up, Psalm 77. We're going to begin at verse 16. And if you've been here, at least for this psalm, you've seen we've, been, uh, we've gone on quite a journey with Asaph. He started at the very lowest that a spiritual man can go, wondering if God was ever going to work again, if he was going to ever keep a promise again, on some level wondering if God even existed. And we come here to the climax at the end, yeah, just incredible images of the power of God. In fact, I would like to just read our section for us here at the beginning, at the front end, so we can have these dramatic images in mind uh, for the next few minutes. We begin in verse 16, and it says, The waters saw you, O God, the waters saw you. They were afraid. The depths also trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies sent out a sound. Your arrows also flashed about. The voice of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was in the sea, your path in the great waters, and your footsteps were not known. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Back in November of last year, as tensions rose on the Korean peninsula and as Kim Jong-un became more brazen in his threats toward other nations and uh, kept using ongoing missile tests, the United States decided to make a show of strength on North Korea's doorstep. A large multi-ship strike group, including supercarriers, cruisers, destroyers, submarines, and over 200 combat aircraft sailed together, performed exercises there in the sea, reminding Pyongyang of the capabilities of the U.S. military. You know, I was reading a little bit about that back when it happened, and I was catching back up on it this week, and I watched a couple of um, videos, news reports of reporters that were there on one of the supercarriers. The amount of strength represented on, during those days was just intense. Uh, if you looked out your, you know, your beachfront property <laughs> and saw this incredible strike group well, I'm sure that for the average North Korean soldier, those were unnerving days, to say the least. Now, through the course of this psalm, Asaph has once again become confident in the great strength of God. And not just his strength, generally speaking, but how God uses his strength on behalf of his people. Big difference between someone who is strong and someone who is strong on your behalf, right? Big difference. And uh, Asaph's been talking about that. We looked at that last time we were together. Now, here in the closing stanza of the song, he reminds us of a great show of divine strength that took place in history. But this show of strength wasn't just a drill. It wasn't ceremonial. It wasn't just saber rattling. 
It was one of the great earth-shaking moments of history when God brought His people across the Red Sea on dry land. Uh, Asaph uses vivid imagery and detail in order to put us in that scene that we might focus on the astonishing power of God. And really, we should focus on God's power, uh, at least when we come to a text like this. I think we do a good job focusing on God's love and God's care and His tenderness, and we're going to do some of that tonight. But also, we want to frequently remind ourselves of the awesome power of God. Because a major theme of these verses is watching God and is watching the displays of His power, watching Him move, watching Him lead, watching His ways. And so let's take a look together verse by verse. We'll begin again at verse 16. It says, The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you. They were afraid. The depths also trembled. Now, when we look at what Asaph writes there at the bottom in verse 20, he references Moses and Aaron. And when we harmonize other passages from, you know, the Old Testament that describe the Red Sea crossing, it's clear that this is the story that Asaph is referencing. That long night when God held back the bloodthirsty army of Pharaoh, took the children of Israel through the Red Sea on dry ground that they might be forever free from Egypt's tyranny and bondage. An incredible night. We took a look at that a little while back on Sunday mornings in our verse-by-verse study through Exodus. But here, as Asaph begins telling the tale, he talks about how the waters saw the Lord on the move and that they were trembling with fear. Uh, It's interesting, the Bible frequently portrays creation as if it's watching God, as if it's, you know, waiting for God or looking to God. We think of when Jesus said, hey, if the people here don't praise what's going on, the rocks are going to cry out because they're watching and they won't be able to help themselves. Uh, They're paying attention to what's happening here. We think of the revelation. We're told there at the end that heaven and earth flee away from the face of Jesus Christ when he's on his great white throne, but no place is found for them. Or we think of Paul writing to the Romans, talking about how all of creation is groaning, waiting for the work of God to be complete. And uh, it's just an interesting thing to think about. Now, let's take a moment to be impressed with just how powerful God is. Of course, we can't get our minds around that at all, but I don't know, at least for myself, I really enjoyed this week trying to think about the incredible power of God, the vast, immeasurable capacity that He has. As a starting point, since Asaph is using nature and sort of the perspective of nature to talk about how God is powerful, uh, let's think of the incredible power of nature, just, just the world we live in, just planet Earth, the surging strength of the oceans, for example. Remember the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami? It killed more than 200,000 people uh, in just a very short amount of time. Unimaginable power. Everybody woke up that day and, you know, here in the West, and we said, what just happened? And we saw the, these reports, and just, just this wave came and wiped out uh, so many places and so many people, uh, unimaginable amounts of power. And yet, Asaph says that when the waters of the Red Sea saw the Lord, they trembled. The power of nature versus the presence of God. And in this case, the sea was in the way of God's plan for His people, and man, it better tremble, because it knew it. It knew, oh man, we're in the way of God's people, and here comes God. And, and it gives that sort of anthropomorphizing of, to the sea, saying, "My man, the sea was afraid, the sea was trembling. Of course, what seemed hopeless for man was no problem for the Lord. The Red Sea was no obstacle. 
Without a word, God spoke that sea into existence. With a word, Jesus commands the winds of the waves. And so, uh, as great as an ocean is, I mean, there's no obstacle at all for the Lord. That 2004 tsunami, it impacted 14 different countries, left millions homeless, one of the worst tragedies in all of human history. The waves were generated by a magnitude 9.1 earthquake, and one source I consulted said that that's the equivalent energy of detonating 23,000 atomic bombs. That's how powerful this one earthquake was. That's just one earthquake. I mean, and there's earthquakes going on all over the earth all the time. Sure, not 9.1 in magnitude, but uh, we think of the power of nature, right? And the power of the systems that God created here on earth. We just are still getting reports of how that volcano in Hawaii blew and just the magnificent power, right, of the lava and all of that kind of stuff. And all of that power multiplied to the infinite degree through the thousands of years of human and history is just nothing in comparison to the strength of God. It's nothing. It, you know, we talked about this in some of our previous studies in, in these psalms, set of psalms. That's just like a wisp of smoke. Yeah, our life is like a wisp of smoke, but, you know, to the Lord, you know, we're told he's got the whole world in his hands. He just spoke and all of the cosmos came into being. He controls it all. He holds all things together. So let's just pick ocean waves and tsunamis and earthquakes, right? And think of all of the earthquakes and all of the tsunamis, all of the rogue waves throughout all of human history, combine it together. We can't even begin to fathom how much power 23,000 nuclear bombs are. That's only one tsunami. Pile it all together and the Lord, you know, doesn't even, if that all hit God all at once, he wouldn't even feel it. Our God has such vast, unfathomable power and capacity it's incredible. There's nothing in comparison to the strength of our God. And that strong God, what did he do that night for the children of Israel? He showed up and said to the Red Sea, move. My people need to go free. And God's people went free. Of course the sea would have been afraid. If you could have asked the sea, are you afraid of this God? Oh yeah, I'm afraid of this God. Verse 17, the clouds poured out water. The skies sent out a sound. Your arrows also flashed about. In verse 16, nature's presented sort of as an obstacle, easily overcome by the Lord. And here, nature becomes a tool in God's hand. We see him as a god at war, slinging arrows at his enemies. And notice how it describes the Lord's ownership over these things, your arrows. And we'll see it again in verse 18, your thunder. It belonged to God. God is not only stronger than nature, it belongs to him. He can direct it for his exact purposes when he desires. We're told that the skies sent out a sound. The heavens were resounding with the work of God that night. And it reminds us that God announces his comings. He lets people know when he's showing up. Uh, angels came to resound on the night of Christ's birth, right? Filling the sky with that message. Glory to God in the highest on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. We know that in the future there will be a great trumpet sounding when he returns for us. We're seeing on Sunday mornings in our studies through Exodus that when God's presence would come to be with his people, like at Mount Sinai or when it comes to the tabernacle, those sorts of things, man, it's, that presence is accompanied by smoke and thunderings and shaking and just all sorts of announcement that God is on the scene. The Lord wants the world to know that he's been here and he wants the world to know that he's coming back. There's no invisible return of Christ, no secret rapture as the Jehovah's Witnesses teach or some other cults might teach. Oh, there's a secret rapture. You won't even know, you know. 
It was an invisible return of Christ. That's not what the Bible says. That's not consistent with what God has done throughout history. When he shows up, he lets the world know. And so uh, we see him here as he does at other times in the Bible. He comes with the sounds of triumph, uh, announcing his presence. Verse 18, the voice of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. And so here, Asaph goes a little bit deeper, not just a sound like in the previous verse, but a voice. A voice is something that speaks, right? It communicates. When God works, he's communicating to those watching or to those hearing about what has happened. And so here we have this incredible image of wind and water and lightning and thunder and whirlwinds and terror. Imagine being one of the Egyptians or being one of the Hebrews on that night and just experiencing this and and seeing the outpouring of God's power and just what a mind blower it would be. You would have had the, you know, the the great cloud of fire behind you holding back the Egyptians. You're looking forward and you're seeing the seas parting, all of these lightnings and thunderings and things like that. And Moses is shouting above it all saying, go, start moving, cross the sea. It would have just been I, we can't compute how magnificent this must have been and, and how terrifying and amazing it must have been to everybody who was there. Now, there, in the song here that Asaph is, the language that he's using, there's a global aspect to what he's talking about. The lightnings lit up the world, right? We can't help but be reminded then of the great tribulation and the kind of cataclysms that are going to fall all over the earth. Images like the ones we're kind of reading about here. As mankind is laid bare, exposed to the judgment of God, and as the Lord comes in again and He says, hey, I'm going to shake this world, and I'm going to judge the world. On a specific note, tying into this verse, we, would, uh, we know that in the future God will once again defend His people with a whirlwind. I thought this was just an interesting cross-reference, Zechariah 9.14. Then the Lord will be seen over them, His people, and His arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will blow the trumpet and go with whirlwinds from the south. You know, some of these methods God likes to use again, uh, and uh, it's going to be just as dramatic and just as... Uh, mind-blowing as we can imagine the Exodus event was. Like that night on the shore of the Red Sea, but to a much greater degree, the earth will once again be shaken. And not just shaken, but we're told in the Revelation, I mean, mountains are going to be leveled, the cosmic heavens are going to be tearing themselves apart when the Lord comes back a second time to once and for all deliver Israel, right? Same sort of mission, coming to rescue His people, coming to judge the wicked nations, uh, many of the, or at least similar ideas that we're seeing here in Asaph's words. Verse 19, your way was in the sea, your path in the great waters, and your footsteps were not known. And so as the children of Israel stood pressed against the shore of the Red Sea, there seemed to be no hope, no way of escape, right? Uh, we know this. That's why they cried out to Moses. I mean, they were freaked out. They cried out in fear and defeat. But how did God respond he said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. Go forward where is what I would have said if I was, you know, a Hebrew there that night. You say, well, there's no way for us to go. But there was a way. That's what Asaph says here. There was a way, a way that was impossible with man, but possible with God. The New Living Translation puts this verse this way. Your road led through the sea, a pathway no one knew was there. 
The reference to footsteps in verse 19 gives us the subtle impression that God had already walked the road himself. And so what we're seeing here is the image not only of a uh, immensely, you know, unthinkably powerful God, but a God who goes before his people and then leads the way. Hey, I, I know the way. I've been there before. I'm not sending you down a road that I don't understand or a road that I haven't scouted out. Follow after me. This is the way to go. I've already walked this. There are my footprints, right? Uh, his way is often completely unpredictable because his ways are not our ways. But we know that his plan is perfect and that he goes before us and that he will be with us and he will never fail us. He'll never forsake us. He walks with us hand in hand. And so he goes before and then he leads us down that path. Verse 20, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And so this God of infinite power is also a God of tender care and concern for his people. So put together, right, we can't even begin to scratch the surface of understanding just how powerful God is. And then Asaph puts right up against that the greatness of God's love for you and for me, his love for his people, how much he cares for us. And, and, you know, what we need to think about when we come across, you know, these descriptions of God is, man, just how powerful God's power is or just how powerful his works are, that's how great his love is for you. That's how great his mercy is for those who will turn to him and receive the gift of salvation. That's how, you know, fathomless his tender loving kindness is towards you and toward me. Just as great as he is in power, he's also great in love. And so the God of infinite power is also a God of tender care and concern for his people. In his eyes, we don't only need to be rescued, we also need to be shepherded. And, you know, one of the things that's been helpful in my mind to think about the difference, I mean, we, we need redemption, we need salvation and rescue, obviously, but, you know, I, I've been imagining, let's say your house is on fire, you're unable to get out, the fireman shows up, the fireman, you know, risks his life, you know, puts himself in harm's way to pull you out of the fire, and let's say he rescues you out of the fire, wow, you saved my life. The fireman then just says, great, are you okay? Yeah, okay, have a nice day, and then that's it. Maybe you'll see the fireman again on another call, or maybe you'll see him around town, hey, I remember that's the guy that pulled me out. The fireman doesn't say, now let me help you rebuild your life. How about you come and be a part of my family now? In fact, I'm going to cut you into my will. In fact, I'm going to adopt you as my son. I'm going to give you everything that's mine, and I'm just going to make you part of my forever family. In fact, I built you a new house. This house was burning. You, you're the one that started the fire, but guess what? Not only did I pull you out of the house, not only did I adopt you as a son, not only am I cutting you into my will, I built a mansion over here for you. Well, that's silly. No firemen would do that, and firemen are great. I mean, we love firemen. They're risking their lives for you. I mean, they're first responders. They're going into the blaze so that you can come out of it, right? But think about God now. God is a rescuer, but he's not just a rescuer. I mean, he's a friend and a shepherd. He says, hey, you know what? You don't just need to be rescued. You need to be shepherded too. You need to be made new. You need to be made whole. I need to actually do something with your life, which is why we see that wonderful you know, picture in the 
uh, story of Israel, saved out of the bondage from Egypt, Egypt forever dealt with, right? Judged, and, and God takes them out, and he says, I'm going to release you from your bonds. And then what does he do? Okay, have at it. No, he says, well, I'm, I'm releasing you from your bonds, and now I'm your God, and you're my people, and here are now the boundaries that I'm placing for you so that you can have an absolutely abundant life full of blessing and full of goodness and full of growth and full of all the things that you really want, but you need me in order to acquire, right? And so God is not just a rescuer. He's also a shepherd. He made us and we are his, the Bible says. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. To lead his people, Asaph said, God used Aaron and Moses by the hand of Moses and Aaron. These two men who kept their eyes on the Lord, watching his leading and direction. They certainly didn't do so perfectly, but what a great encouragement for us as Christians to see what amazing things God can do even through imperfect vessels, even through a guy like Moses, right? Moses was a great servant of God, a great servant of God, and could be a real knucklehead bonehead too, right? I mean, if you want to talk about an imperfect vessel, Moses is one of the many great examples that we find in the Bible. The guy's a murderer. Uh, at points in his life, he's a coward. At points in his life, he defies the you know, com- direct command of God. Uh, he's struggled with frustration and all these. I mean, he ran the gamut, right? And God can use a man like that say, man, let me show you what I can do with a man who's watching me, who's listening to me, who's being led by me. I, I think that's a great encouragement for us. And so uh, the Lord used Aaron and Moses. Um, God doesn't only want to use Moses and Aaron. He wants to use you and I to accomplish his work as well. And the requirements to be used by God are really pretty simple. Asaph doesn't delve into them here, but I mean, it's simple. Watch the Lord, listen to him, obey him, walk by faith. It's very simple. The Lord just says, hey, just follow me. What did Jesus tell people when he was walking around on the earth? He said, hey, just follow me. He didn't give them a big, long syllabus. I remember, you know, when I was in school and you get to your first day of class and you know what they would do? They'd give you out the syllabus. Had this one teacher in particular, ended up being my favorite professor. If he was still teaching, I would just go and take classes from him. He was so great. But his syllabus was like, you know, every class was like 20 or 25 pages, I mean, just of all of this stuff that you were going to be doing and all of the requirements and all of the work and things like that, and you thought, ooh, this is a lot of work. What did Jesus say? He said, hey, follow me. Just follow me and trust me and believe in me. It's really very simple. It wasn't always easy, of course, but he said, hey, follow me. And so the Lord wants to use each of us, and the requirements are pretty simple. Watch the Lord, listen to him, obey him, walk by faith. It did make me think, though, this, this whole scene. Couldn't God have just teleported the people across the sea? Now, we know that God has that power, right? Even in the Bible. I mean, we kind of laugh at it, but God, God does that sometimes. Think about Philip, the evangelist, right? He, he goes there, he has his interaction with the Ethiopian eunuch, what happens? They get, he baptizes him, and when they come up out of the water, bam, we would use the word teleported or raptured. He was raptured to another town. So far, he didn't even know where he was. He had to find out what town he was in. Or we think of that time in the book of John. What happens? The, the disciples are stuck in the storm on the sea, right? Jesus comes out walking to them. As soon as he's received into the boat, bam, it says that they are on the far side of the sea. 
The Lord teleported them. He raptured them across uh, a certain amount of space. And so I was, you know, I was thinking, okay, well, so why not here? Wouldn't that be a great story to tell? Why did they have to walk through the sea? Well, first of all, being teleported miraculously doesn't require faith, does it? If the Lord wanted to drop me all of a sudden somewhere else, it doesn't really require any faith of mine. Philip didn't say, hang on, let me pray before we do this baptism. Lord, as soon as we come up out of the water, get me out of here to some random town. He was just following the Lord, doing what the Lord commanded him, and the Lord said, okay, I need this guy over here now. And so it didn't require faith. It's not that God never does this. He does in the Bible, but we're called to a faith relationship with the, word, without, with the Lord. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so life is going to be full of opportunities for us to exercise real trusting faith in our God. Are we going to walk through the Red Sea? Are we going to walk the way that the Lord has given us, even when it seems impossible, even when it seems like, man, is this the plan, Lord? You want us to walk through here? Second, if Israel had just been teleported to the other side of the sea, well, who would have remained? The Egyptian army. They could have remained as a threat. Sure, the immediate danger of that night would have been gone, but clearly Pharaoh was bent and intent on destroying God's people, right? He had just gone crazy with revenge and anger. I mean, he was going to go wipe out Israel one way or another. Israel's on foot with a bunch of livestock and children and all of this stuff. They didn't have chariots. They didn't have a bunch of horses. The Egyptian army, horses, chariots, I mean, they're going to catch up. Maybe they have to go around the Red Sea, but they're going to catch up with these folks. And then what happens? Well, Pharaoh would have been able to catch up with them, and the, the Israel would have been cornered again. The danger would have been just the same. No, it was through the Red Sea on dry ground that accomplished a variety of God's purposes, showing that nothing can stand in the way of his plan for his people, building the faith of his people, dealing with the danger, not just that night, but once and for all. I mean, this was the best plan on a lot of different levels. What a great comfort to Asaph in these difficult days he was in. He had started this psalm searching for signs of God's work, and by the end, he's just overwhelmed with thoughts of the active power of God moving on behalf of the people he loves. And the same God who told the Red Sea to pile up is leading his people still with tender mercy, loving kindness, just as much power, just as much desire to move. Still, he is redeeming and declaring his strength, and we talked about that last time, declaring his strength through us. We should watch the Lord, as Asaph did, as creation does. Watching God is what pulled Asaph out of his deep despair, right? How do we watch? Well, the Bible explains that we watch for his coming, and we watch for his leading. First, his coming. Jesus Christ is coming back to earth. Uh, he said in Revelation 16, I am coming, blessed is he who watches. I mean, so that's pretty straightforward. From the source, we should watch for his coming. That's, uh, of course, not the only passage, but probably the most concise one. Now, there are two parts to this watching for the Lord's coming. He's coming not only to rescue us, but also to judge his enemies, right? I mean, we understand the plan. He's coming to get us, coming to judge the unbelieving world. And because we know that, we can call out to those who are lost and help bring them into the fold, into, uh, you know, the flock, as it were. We understand the kind of power God is going to unleash on the earth during the tribulation and the kind of wrath that's going to make the Red Sea scene here seem just trivial in comparison, like a nothing. He's coming to war against his enemies, and nothing, nothing, nothing is going to stop him. 
The only hope for those outside the family of God is to find salvation in Jesus Christ. And so we watch for the Lord because we love His coming. It's our blessed hope. And we watch for His coming to keep us urgent about the business of evangelism. There are not many days left for us to pull people from the sinking ship, right? I remember, you know, when all that North Korea stuff was happening at the end of last year, one of the things I read uh, was, a, was a discussion about how, hey, if they launch a missile at Guam, the island of Guam will have 15, maybe 17 minutes of warning before impact. Not a lot of time. Uh, not much time at all to get the word out, and so all the more reason to have the alert system working and working well, right, in order to save as many lives as possible in that event. But we don't only watch the Lord for His coming, we also watch for His leading. The Lord is on the move still today. He tells us to follow Him. He leads us. He doesn't leave us. And as we live out our Christian life, God is often going to lead us in ways that we could not have planned or predicted ourselves, down pathways no one knew was there. Uh, And so to know the way, we have to watch the Lord so that we can stay in step with Him and His leading. He's our good shepherd, leading us to great green pastures along a perfect route where he will show himself strong for us and in us because he cares for us. He's a God whose infinite strength is matched by his infinite personal love, an active love, strong in power given to you and I that we might enjoy him and be used by him. And then finally, our encouragements. And I just watch the Lord by thinking about his power, his grace, and his love. Just watch the Lord examining him as he's revealed in the word. Look how powerful our God is. Look how loving our God is. Look how magnificent our God is. That's what Asaph did. And it's a real comfort just to think about how powerful our God really is. And to remember his promise that he will never leave us or forsake us. Watching God with trusting faith is what pulled Asaph out of his despair, and it can give us great strength day in and day out as well. And so watch the Lord. Watch for his coming. Watch for his leading. Watch how he operates so that you can be built up in your faith.